This presentation is brought to you by the Australia India Institute, based at the University of Melbourne. Again, of myself as well. Wind Asylum is my first book, uh, published in 2012 by Westland Books uh, in India. Basically, talks about uh, a fictional account of a deaf boy who wants to win gold in the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. It's narrated by his younger brother um, when their lives collide and their destinies unite. Um, and it's really my take on that underdog story, which I'm really, really, really fond of. Uh, so that was also translated into Korean. Um, subsequently, let me go, as Craig kindly pointed out, about a free-spirited, rebellious young girl in India who tragically ends up uh, with locked-in syndrome to the form of a conscious coma where only your eyes can move and that's your only communication tool with the entire world. She decides to pull the plug, but her only hope is her friend in Melbourne uh, who's oblivious to her condition and then six years after she struggled, he tries to instill some hope in her, the desire to live once again. But is it all too late? Too little. So that's what Let Me Go is about, published um, this year and next year by Finger Fiction in India. The Charity of His Son um, is, very, is, is my third book that I have recently completed. We hope that it will be published towards the end of 2016, both in Australia and India. I'd like you all to just note this book. We'll be circling back to this book again. Um, it's very relevant to what we're talking about today. Fourth one that I'm working on is called Center for Kill, uh, Tackled Domestic Violence. Um, expected publication somewhere in mid-2017 in both these countries. Now, all right, the Indian epics. So whilst this uh, talk today, we'll talk a lot about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. It's not strictly limited to that. So all Indian scriptures are very much in scope and in play for, for what we're here to discuss. A quick show of hands, who here knows absolutely nothing about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata? Like, nothing. Oh, this is awesome. So let me, let me flip the question around. Who knows quite a bit about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata? That's eh, not bad. That's very good. I, I was fearing, oh, how am I going to summarize these two grand epics in five minutes? But we'll, we'll do a brief summary of it anyway. Um, so first, the Ramayana, basically an epic poem, uh, consists of 24,000 verses, traditionally uh, attributed to sage Valmiki, which is a very interesting story in itself, but that's for some other day. Um, so the Ramayana basically talks um, about Prince Rama of, uh, of Ayodhya, or, or Lord Rama, where he is considered by Hindu scriptures to be the seventh incarnation of the Supreme. Um, and, there, and then we have Lakshana, his, his devoted younger brother, and Hanuman of the Monkey Kingdom, who is his devotee. And then we have Goddess Sita, 
and their lives are turned upside down when, uh, when the king of Lanka, uh, in, in the guise of a Brahmin sage, abducts Sita and takes her back to his kingdom. And so the Ramayana, the crux of the Ramayana, if I may summarize it, is about Lord Rama's pursuit to bring Sita back to safety. Um, so in a lot of epics, as you can see, this is probably the good, this is the evil. And it's a fight between good and evil. And coincidentally, and I would like to think it's more than just coincidence, today is actually a very special day in the Hindu calendar. Today is actually Dashera, or Vijay Dashmi in a few parts. It marks the day that Lord Rama defeated Rama. It's actually quite, <laughs> quite interesting, isn't it? It's meant to be. Um, so yeah, this, this is another artist's impression of how Lord Rama defeats a very powerful Ravana and brings Sita back home. The Mahabharata, on the other hand, is an epic that details the great Kurukshetra war. Um, great simply because of its scale. It's probably uh, a bit unfortunate the war that people try to avoid, but again, it's meant to happen. Essentially, there are two sides again to this, to this epic. On one side, we have the Pandavas, or the five Pandava brothers. The artist says, for some reason, decided to make them all have the same face. They were not twins, or whatever you call set of five lookalikes. Uh, but, and it's their wife, Draupadi, and along with the blessing of Lord Krishna, who is the eighth incarnation, believed to be the eighth incarnation of Vishnu, uh, the Supreme, um, they stake their claim for the throne of Hastinapur. They believe it is rightfully theirs, and they have reason to believe that the evil Duryodhana, or their cousin, has snatched it away from them, including a few murder plots and a few other really dubious and deceitful games of dice. Um, so that's essentially the epic. This is the story of righteousness or dharma against unrighteousness. Um, so that's really it in a simplistic scale. But to give you an idea of how big the Mahabharata really is, and the Ramayana is big. So how many aware of the Iliad, Odyssey? Yeah. So combine them together, multiply them by 10, and you've got the Mahabharata. So it's really big. Um, it's about four times the Ramayana itself. Now, the Hindu pantheon of gods, there are just a few handful, one or two. <laughs> Uh, this is the best uh, representation I got. And look, as I mean, you know, I have a few familiar faces here. And, I, and you've, if you've not grown up in India, you've grown up sort of in an Indian culture uh, in Australia. And you would have always been exposed to these stories of various gods and goddesses and deities. So there was never any dearth of, of stories. There have always been these anecdotes, these fables, if you may. Uh, I recall my mother would, you know, would leave uh, no excuse to tell me, oh, by the way, do you know what happened when Lord Shiva... So I've, I've grown up on those stories, and I'm sure I'm not, I'm not alone, as, as, as most of you. So for a, a writer, for someone who wishes to... Uh, the original epics were in Sanskrit. They weren't really accessible to a lot of people. They were really big. Try reading 200,000 lines take you a few lifetimes, especially if you don't understand the language. Um, so what a lot of uh, writers did is, okay, how can we take these wonderful epics and their wonderful stories bigger markets? The Britishers did a wonderful thing. We in inherited the language from them. 
uh, and English was a very uh, easy way to reach out to a bigger, to a critical mass. So uh, I'm just going to briefly talk about works that existed um, pre-2000, just to draw a line at, at the millennium. There were many other authors. I've just chosen to pick one, which is C. Radhikopalachari, again, very close to my childhood. I've read both these books. Um, and they really helped in not alienating those people who were initially or originally saying, oh, it's too difficult for us, we don't get it. So this is really simple, English, uh, very effective retelling. The, the great writer did not, however, resort to any um, licenses, artistic licenses, or I, I don't know if he was tempted to say, oh, what if? But he didn't. He stuck to the originals. They were very, very loyal to what uh, to both Fiasa, who wrote, um, who's traditionally attributed the authorship of Mahabharata, and Valmiki, who wrote Ramayana, was very, very loyal to those, to those versions. Anyone seen this before? Read this? So again, as kids, there were comic versions. So if you, if you may, the DC or the Marvel equivalent of this was Amal Chitrakata. Um, so as you can see, they, they were really little books, you know, and my summer would be spent reading Archie, Jughead, um, you know, Asterix, and this. So they were really entertaining, they were really simple, really simplified. Could put a face to the name, you could get a theme for the character. So they not only touched the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, but they also specifically had episodes of very interesting characters like Karna, which is, uh, you know, my wife would say I'm obsessed with Karna, which is probably right. Um, and then there's, there's Vali, the monkey king, um, Lord Shiva, various tables, Hanuman. So these are just a little, I mean, they, their catalogue was amazing. It is amazing. It's still does very well. And so whilst they all you know, started reaching out to bigger audiences, what we didn't see was the craze that, say, Bollywood brings or cricket brings. Frenzy was missing until, until something happened in 2010, until that actually happened. One author, one author decided to ask the daring question of what if the gods we know today weren't gods to begin with. What if they were mere mortals like you and I? What if they ascended God-like status by the deeds that they did? Fascinating question. We all voiced this. But this author decided to take it a step further, write a fantastic novel, wonderful adventure of how Shiva, a Tibetan immigrant, became the Neil Kanto became Lord Shiva. Fascinating tale. So this is really the theme. Um, what if the gods want to be immortal? And a lot of other authors took on to this. They all jumped on this, on this bandwagon. Um, and they started writing about drama. Saying, oh. And by the way, a few scriptures, a few um, schools of thought do believe that the original scriptures do not point to his divinity. Whatever was added about his divinity was added later. Uh, very interesting school of thought. Um, definitely leaves a lot of room for, for some interesting pieces of fiction. So the Shiva trilogy, Immortal uh, Meluwa, Secret of the Nagas, Oath of the Wise Sisters, smashed all existing book records, um, crossed two and a half million copies and counting. 
it's a bit difficult to get exact sales data from, from uh, book sales in India and Houston, um, but the sources prove that this is long being surpassed by these books. So the new number would be something much bigger than this. So the craze, the frenzy started. Much like the iPhone mania, people were lining up for Amish's next books. They were dressed like Lord Shiva. They were wearing Damaru. They were playing. You know, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. No author had, you know, was successful in doing that. And no author was successful in getting $1 million in advance for his next series. Unheard of amount in India for any author. So this is proving that there's commercial success. The market is there for a well-told story. Now, so that was one trend. But what if, what if God's one thing off? But then other authors decided to mix and alternate the myth with the modern, the past with the present. And one great example of this is Ashwin Sanghi, who um, wrote a book called Chanakya's Chant. And I'll just spend some time again talking about Chanakya, and you probably would have come across Chanakya in your, uh, in your studies. Now, Chanakya is, if I put it simply, and it's probably not doing justice to him, is the Machiavelli of, of India. Uh, he was considered a pioneer uh, in, in political science and economics. He wrote a book called the Arthashastra um, and was, was, a, was, a, was a political mastermind, a kingmaker. He was the one who, uh, there was an empire in India called the Chandra, Gupta Maurya, uh, Gupta Empire. <coughs> Chandra Gupta was, was a king. Chanakya was a kingmaker. So, um, Ashwin Sandhi very beautifully brought in these two stories and said, what if there was a modern day Chanakya as well? who takes a woman from the streets of UP and makes her the Prime Minister of India. Fantastic concept. Um, similarly, Ashwin also wrote the Krishna Key. Um, Ashwin Sanghi is the Dan Brown of India, just to give you some context. And the Krishna Key is the Da Vinci Code of India. <laughs> um, so, tied in beautifully with uh, segments of Krishna from the Mahabharata. Um, so, yeah, these two books did very well. What's common between these two books and the one you just saw, the Shiva Trilogy? They're both published by Westland. And Westland was the first publisher to really say, oh, I'm going to enter this market, and we're going to leave no stones unturned. Coincidentally, Westland also published my first book. Um, but I should have probably written on mythology. <laughs> then there was another set of authors that said, hang on. So let me rephrase, right? So Lord Rama fought, the, the good Lord Rama fought the evil Ravana and beat him. But just because Ravana lost, was he evil? History always says the one, generally, the ones who the vanquished are sort of put in the same bucket as the evil. Well, that's what we're led to believe. Duryodhana, again, uh, you know, we're all brought up saying Duryodhana was evil. But was he really evil? So a set of authors decided to explore that, and one person who stands out was Anand Nilkantan, who wrote, so this was on the Mahabharata, this was on the Ramayana. Uh, so this is, he called it Duryodhana's Mahabharata. He's not got it on here. But he, he, this is promoted as Duryodhana's Mahabharata. So he's flipped the entire Mahabharata, and you look at it from Duryodhana's perspective. What if there's more to Duryodhana than we're led to believe? And similarly, Asura, the tale of the vanquished, is the story of Ravana and his people. So the whole perspective of these books is, hang on, is there more to Ravana than we've been told? Uh, uh, he calls himself uh, the respectful rebel. Anand Nilkantan refers to himself as, yes, I'm a rebel, but I'm respectful to these two epics. 
Uh, but again, the, the book lovers of India really taken to these, to these kinds of deviations from the norm. And these themes are increasingly emerging with a lot of authors saying, all right, let's challenge what we've been said and let's present it in a different light. Uh, those authors who say, you know, we've always heard the it's a man's world tag in a lot of popular culture shows generally. I'm just not generalizing here, but if you were to, you know, take a, a, a statement um, that represents popular culture, it's fair to say that they show damsels in distress, hero comes out of the woods, rescues the damsel, they live happily on or after. So a lot of them said, okay, hang on. Even you've got that in the Ramayana, got a Sita gets abducted, you know, and Rama, brave Rama rescues her. You've got um, Draupadi in, in the Mahabharat, who goes through a lot and in many ways is a catalyst for the war. But have you explored the ethics through their eyes, through the women's eyes? What if they saw things that you hadn't known? Uh, very fascinating. So two examples again, I think many people have done this. Chitra Banerjee's Devakaruni wrote The Palace of Illusion. So really, it's, and she says it here, Panchali's Mahabharat. Um, so this is from the eyes of Draupadi. It's a wonderful novel. And those who haven't read it and would like to read it, it's a very, very well written book. Um, similarly, in Charat, a good friend of mine from New Zealand, he wrote The Wind of Hastinapur. Now, those who might not know the Mahabharat intimately, um, Ganga, or the Ganges, as a lot of us know it, is personified as a goddess. And goddess Ganga has a huge role in, in the Mahabharata. She sets a lot of things in motion. And wrote it from her perspective, and from Princess Satyavati's perspective, who follows uh, goddess Ganga. So very interesting takes, and these are all happening right now in India, which is growing, growing, booming. So this is a great time to be writing fiction, especially for these new... Um, you know, models and ways to and perspective. Samita Arani, who presented a different talk here, I don't know how many of you came for that talk, she brought not only uh, Mahabharata to, um, from a women's perspective, but she also brought it to modern times. So, uh, the Ramayana, sorry, Missing Queen, about Sita. And that, you know, Ramayana, setting for the Ramayana, you know, as we know it was forests and bows and arrows and, you know, but this was happening with malls, shopping centers, uh, cell phones, you know, it was completely modernized. That's another new take. Shashi Tharoor, who is, uh, who is many things, but very renowned author as well, apart from all the, the activities it does in the political space, wrote the great Indian novel, which is also very similar, setting it in modern day times. What would that look like? Now we come to Karna. I hope you remember when I said uh, about Karna. So let me take a step back. So, and let me test your memory again. With the Mahabharata, we had the Pandavas. How many brothers? Wonderful, I don't have chocolates to give you this. <laughs> I'm sure Craig will organize for it. And on the other hand, we have Duryodhana and his cousins, uh, and his brothers. And they're both fighting for the throne of Hastinapur. At some point, Duryodhana meets Karna. And they become friends for life. Karna pledges his life to Duryodhana. That no matter what, he will fight, and if necessary, die for Duryodhana. And he does. But interestingly, Karna is the eldest Pandava. And he doesn't know that until quite late in the epic. So Karna has divided a lot of people. One says tragic hero, one says uh -huh, scheming villain. 
I haven't been able to answer that question. And he's fascinated a lot of writers, including me, which led me to make my third book. I'll come to that in a minute. So a lot of people have, um, you know, Karna's wife did really well. Kavita is an ex-journalist, uh, and she created uh, Karna's wife, a figment of her imagination. <coughs> um, Karna's actual wife was Rishali, but in this book, she created a character. Uh, and then there's the Marathi masterpiece, Mrityanjaya, which has been a long-standing uh, reference and a benchmark in, in the Marathi literary space. So like them, I have decided to write about the charity of Sun, which is coming soon. So hopefully if you all like Karna, like, like we all do, and we'll have to have a keep an eye out for this. Publishers, how are they taking it? So we talked about Westland. So they jumped in first. Right? They said, yep, that's it. We're going to take this market by storm. And they did. Because they, had, they, they, they have Shiva Trilogy. Right? They have India's biggest selling author. They have Ashwin Sanghi. Um, so Westland really jumped in and really smashed the market. The others weren't too far behind, though. You've got HarperCollins. You've got Penguin. You've got Rupa, who publishes Chetan Bhagat, who is one of India's other biggest selling authors. He doesn't write mythological fiction. He writes campus love stories and those kind of usual modern, modern masala. Um, and then there's lead star publishing, which I'm the fingerprint, Srishti, Jayko. These are all India's biggest publishers. And they've all acknowledged that this is a space that India will continue to grow in. They don't see it abating. They actually don't see it diminishing in any shape or form. So suddenly, authors are saying, yep, I'm going to write. And you know what? I'm going to write knowing that I have a good chance of getting published in India. So there's a lot of commercial success. There's a lot of evidence for creative storytelling. Because nobody's slapping you on the wrist and going, don't change what we know. It's not happening. The readers are going, yep, we'd like to read new stuff. Thank you very much. So authors are really, literally cashing in. Um, and you know, everyone's a winner. Their, their literary appetite is getting wetted. And everyone's everyone, everyone cashing. So let me summarize, and I will leave the floor open for questions. Is if you were to look at, all right, the axis on, um, we've, we've got perspective. So we're ranging from old to new. And then on this side, we've got material from old to new. So if I were to look at Palace of Illusions and Dharma's wife, at that time they knew that was happening in 2007, um, the, the material was still old. It was still the Mahabharata. The perspective was new. They were presenting it from women's side, which had not been explored before. When Shiva Trilogy happened, it was, it was the first of its kind to be in that, in that quadrant there. Sorry, this is all MBA. <laughs> Blame the people across the street for that. Um, Shiva Trilogy was very new material, with new perspective as well. But then everybody started squirming <coughs> that, that corner. Guardians of Halahala. Uh, very good book. It's, it's, it's got a fantasy element to it. Very well written book. Again, by an author who was published at the same time as I was. But then everybody's going for that, for that quote. So with um, The Forest of Stories by Ashok Banker, Again, very, very renowned author. Jaya Devdak Patnaik. Again, very, very strong. Writes non-fiction though. Um, and there's lots to talk about. I've really picked a few that, that time, time permitted. With the Chinese son, I'm hoping, yep, it's the old perspective. It's still from Karna. People have, you know, done it from Karna's perspective before. But I'm presenting new material that they haven't read. 
So I'm making up a few things. So there is, there is fiction wrapped around fact. And there's at least three people in this room who have kind enough to be beta readers for my book. And they've, they've given it their thumbs up, so you can blame them. Um, uh, so look, I'm really hoping that, like they ask Anish, you know, people ask, what if he's, what if he's right? What if he's actually true? Hmm. All right, so that's, that's me, ladies and gentlemen, for this afternoon. Thank you all for coming in the numbers that you have. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys, so thanks again. If, I, if you have any questions, I'm, I'm happy to try and answer them. I'm not an expert. I'm just an enthusiast. This presentation is brought to you by the Australia India Institute, based at the University of Melbourne.